Part the First, Chapter Fourteen of Dick Sands, the Boy Captain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alex C. Talander, Davis, California. Dick Sands, the Boy Captain by Jules Verne, translated by Ellen E. Frewer. Part the First, Chapter Fourteen, Ashore. Thus, after a voyage of seventy-four days, the pilgrim had stranded. Mrs. Weldon and her fellow voyagers joined in thanksgiving to the kind providence that had brought them ashore, not upon one of the solitary islands of Polynesia, but upon a solid continent, from almost any part of which there would be no difficulty in getting home. The ship was totally lost. She was lying in the surf, a hopeless wreck, and few must be the hours that would elapse before she would be broken up in scattered fragments. It was impossible to save her. Notwithstanding that Dick Sands bewailed the loss of a valuable ship and her cargo to the owner, he had the satisfaction of knowing that he had been instrumental in saving what was far more precious, the lives of the owner's wife and son. It was impossible to do more than hazard a conjecture as to the part of the South American coast on which the pilgrim had been cast. Dick imagined that it must be somewhere on the coast of Peru. After sighting Easter Island, he knew that the united action of the equatorial current and the brisk wind must have had the effect of driving the schooner far northward, and he formed his conclusion accordingly. Be the true position, however, what it might, it was all important that it should be accurately ascertained as soon as possible. If it were really in Peru, he would not be long in finding his way to one of the numerous ports and villages that lie along the coast. But the shore here was quite a desert. A narrow strip of beach, strewn with boulders, was enclosed by a cliff of no great height, in which, at irregular intervals, deep funnels appeared as chasms in the rock. Here and there a gentle slope led to the top. About a quarter of a mile to the north was the mouth of a little river which had not been visible from the sea. Its banks were overhung by a number of rhizophora, a species of mangrove entirely distinct from that indigenous to India. It was soon ascertained that the summit of the cliff was clothed by a dense forest, extending far away in undulations of verdure to the mountains in the background. Had Cousin Benedict been a botanist, he could not have failed to find a new and interesting field for his researches. There were lofty baobabs, to which an extraordinary longevity has often been erroneously ascribed, with bark resembling Egyptian cyanite. There were white pines, tamarinds, pepper plants of peculiar species, and numerous other plants unfamiliar to the eye of a native of the north. But strange to say, there was not a single specimen of the extensive family of palms, of which more than a thousand varieties are scattered in profusion in so many quarters of the globe. Above the shore hovered a large number of screeching birds, mostly of the swallow tribe, their black plumage shot with steely blue, and shading off to a light brown at the top of the head. Now and then a few partridges of a grayish color rose on wing, their necks entirely bare of feathers. The fearless manner in which the various birds all allowed themselves to be approached made Mrs. Weldon and Dick both wonder if the shores upon which they had been thrown were not so deserted that the sound of firearms was not known. On the edge of the reefs some pelicans, of the species known as Pelicanus minor, were busily filling their pouches with tiny fish, and some gulls coming in from the open sea began to circle round the wreck. With these exceptions not a living creature appeared in sight. Benedict, no doubt, could have discovered many entomological novelties among the foliage, but these could give no more information than the birds as to the name of their habitat. Neither north nor south nor towards the forest was there trace of rising smoke or any footprint or other sign to indicate the presence of a human being. Dick's surprise was very great. He knew that the proximity of a native would have made Dingo bark aloud, but the dog gave no warning. He was running backwards and forwards, his tail lowered and his nose close to the ground. Now and again he uttered a deep growl. 
"'Look at Dingo,' said Mrs. Weldon. "'How strange he is. He seems to be trying to discover a lost scent.' After watching the dog for a time, she spoke again. "'Look, too, at Nagoro. He and the dog seem to be on the same purpose.' "'As to Nagoro,' said Dick, "'I cannot concern myself with him now. He must do as he pleases. I have no further control over him. His service expires with the loss of the ship.' Nagoro was in fact walking to and fro, surveying the shore with the air of a man who was trying to recall some past experience to his recollection. His dog taciturnity was too well known for any one to think of questioning him. Every one was accustomed to let him go his own way, and when Dick noticed that he had gone towards the little river and had disappeared behind the cliff, he thought no more about him. Dingo likewise had quite forgotten his enemy and desisted from his growling. The first necessity for the shipwrecked party was to find a temporary shelter, where they might take some refreshment. There was no lack of provisions. Independently of the resources of the land, the ebbing tide had left upon the rocks the great bulk of the pilgrim's stores, and the negroes had already collected several kegs of biscuit and a number of cases of preserved meat, besides a variety of other supplies. All that they rescued they carefully piled up above the high water mark. As nothing appeared to be injured by the sea-water, the victualling of the party all seemed to be satisfactorily secure for the interval which must elapse, and they all believed it would not be long, before they reached one of the villages which they presumed were close at hand. Dick, moreover, took the precaution of sending Hercules to get a small supply of fresh water from the river hard by, and the good-natured fellow returned carrying a whole barrel full on his shoulder. Plenty of fuel was lying about, and whenever they wanted to light a fire they were sure of having an abundance of dead wood and the roots of the old mangroves. Old Tom, an inveterate smoker, always carried a tinder-box in his pocket. This had been too tightly fastened to be affected by the moisture, and could always produce a spark upon occasion. Still they must have a shelter. Without some rest it was impossible to start upon a tour of exploration. Accordingly, all interests were directed towards ascertaining where the necessary repose could be obtained. The honour of discovering where the desired retreat could be found fell to the lot of little Jack. Trotting about at the foot of the cliff, he came upon one of those grottoes which are constantly being found hollowed out in the rock by the vehement action of the waves in time of tempest. "'Here, look here!' cried the child. "'Here is a place!' "'Well done, Jack,' answered his mother. "'Your lucky discovery is just what we wanted. If we were going to stay here any time, we should have to do the same as the Swiss family Robinson and name the spot after you.' It was hardly more than twelve or fourteen feet square, and yet the grotto seemed to Jack to be a gigantic cavern but narrow as its limits were, it was capacious enough to receive the entire party. It was a great satisfaction to Mrs. Weldon to observe that it was perfectly dry, and as the moon was just about her first quarter, there was no likelihood of a tide rising to the foot of the cliff. At any rate, it was resolved that they might take up their quarters there for a few hours. Shortly after one o'clock the whole party were seated upon a carpet of seaweed, round a repast consisting of preserved meat, biscuit, and water flavoured with a few drops of rum, of which Bat had saved a quart bottle from the wreck. Even Nogoro had returned and joined the group. Probably he had not cared to venture alone along the bank of the stream into the forest. He sat listening, as it seemed indifferently, to the various plans for the future that were being discussed, and did not open his mouth either way of remonstrance or suggestion. Dingo was not forgotten, and had his share of food duly given him outside the grotto, where he was keeping guard. When the meal was ended, Mrs. Weldon, passing her arms around Jack, who was lounging half asleep with excitement and fatigue at her side, was the first to speak. "'My dear Dick,' she said, "'in the name of us all, let me thank you for your, the services you have rendered us in our tedious time of difficulty. As you have been our captain at sea, let me beg you to be our guide upon land. We shall have perfect confidence in your judgment, and await your instructions as to what our next proceedings shall be.' All eyes were turned upon Dick. 
Even Negoro appeared to be roused to curiosity, as if eager to know what he had to say. Dick did not speak for some moments. He was manifestly pondering what step he should advise. After a while he said, "'My own impression, Mrs. Weldon, is that we have been cast ashore upon one of the least frequented parts of the coast of Peru, and that we are near the borders of the Pampas. In that case I should conclude that we are at a considerable distance from any village. Now, I recommend that we stay here altogether for the coming night. Tomorrow morning two of us can start off on an exploring expedition. I entertain but little doubt that natives will be met with within ten or a dozen miles. Mrs. Weldon looked doubtful. Plainly she thought unfavorably of the project of separating the party. She reflected for a considerable time, and then asked, "'And who is to undertake the task of exploring?' Prompt was Dick's answer. "'Tom and I.' "'And leave us here?' suggested the lady. "'Yes, to take care of you there will be Hercules, Bat, Actaeon, and Austin. "'Negoro, too, I presume, means to be reigned here,' said Dick, glancing towards the cook. "'Perhaps,' replied Negoro, sparing as ever of his words. "'We shall take Dingo,' added Dick. "'Likely enough he may be useful.' At the sound of his name the dog had entered the grotto. A short bark seemed to testify his approval of Dick's proposal. Mrs. Weldon was silent. She looked sad and thoughtful. It was hard to reconcile herself to the division of the party. She was aware that the separation would not be for long, but she could not suppress a certain feeling of nervousness. Was it not possible that some natives, attracted by the wreck, would assault them in hopes of plunder? Every argument he could think of Dick brought forward to reassure the lady. He told her that the Indians were perfectly harmless, and entirely different to the savage tribes of Africa and Polynesia. There was no reason to apprehend any mischief, even if they should chance to encounter them, which was itself extremely unlikely. No doubt the separation would have its inconveniences, but they would be insignificant compared with the difficulty of traversing the country en masse. Tom and he would have far greater freedom if they went alone, and could make their investigations much more thoroughly. Finally he promised that if within two days they failed to discover human habitation, they would return to the grotto forthwith. I confess, however, he added, that I have little expectation of being able to ascertain our true position until I have penetrated some distance into the country. There was nothing in Dick's representations but what commanded Mrs. Weldon's assent as reasonable. It was simply her own nervousness, she acknowledged, that made her hesitate, but it was only with extreme reluctance that she finally yielded to the proposition. "'And what, Mr. Benedict, is your opinion of my proposal?' said Dick, turning to the entomologist. "'I,' answered Cousin Benedict, looking somewhat bewildered. "'Oh, I am agreeable to anything. I dare say I shall find some specimens. I think I will go and look at once.' "'Take my advice, and don't go far away,' replied Dick. "'All right, I shall take care of myself.' "'And don't be bringing back a lot of mosquitoes,' said old Tom mischievously. With his box under his arm, the naturalist left the grotto. Negoro followed almost immediately.' He did not take the same direction as Benedict up the cliff, but for the second time bent his steps toward the river, and proceeded along its bank till he was out of sight. It was not long before Jack's exertions told upon him, and he fell into a sound sleep. Mrs. Weldon, having gently laid him on Nan's lap, wandered out and made her way to the water's edge. She was soon joined by Dick and the Negroes, who wanted to see whether it was possible to get to the Pilgrim, and secure any articles that might be serviceable for future use. The reef on which the schooner had stranded was now quite dry, and the carcass of the vessel, which had been partially covered at high water, was lying in the midst of debris of the most promiscuous character. The wide difference between high and low water mark caused Dick Sands no little surprise. He knew that the tides on the shores of the Pacific were very inconsiderable. In his own mind, however, he came to the conclusion that the phenomenon was to be explained by the unusually high wind that had been blowing on the coast. Not without emotion could Mrs. Weldon, or indeed any of them, behold the unfortunate ship upon which they had spent so many eventful days, lying dismasted on her side. But there was little time for sentiment. 
If they wished to visit the hull before it finally went to pieces, there must be no delay. Hoisting themselves by some loose rigging that was hanging from the deck, Dick and several of the negroes contrived to make their way into the interior of the hull. Dick left his men to gather together all they could in the way of food and drink from the storeroom, and himself went straight to the stern cabin into which the water had not penetrated. Here he found four excellent per-day's Remington rifles and a hundred cartridges. With these he determined to arm his party, in case they should be attacked by Indians. He also chose six of the strongest of the cutlasses that are used for slicing up dead whales, and did not forget the little toy gun which was Jack's special property. Unexpectedly he found a pocket compass, which he was only too glad to appropriate. What a boon it would have been had he discovered it earlier. The ship's charts in the fore cabin were too much injured by water to be of any further service. Nearly everything was either lost or spoiled, but the misfortune was not felt very acutely because there was ample provision for a few days, and it seemed useless to burden themselves with more than was necessary. Dick hardly needed Mrs. Weldon's advice to secure all the money that might be on board, but after the most diligent search he failed to discover more than five hundred dollars. This was a subject of perplexity. Mrs. Weldon had had a considerably larger sum than this, and Captain Hall was known always to keep a good reserve in hand. There was but one way to solve the mystery. Someone had been beforehand to the wreck. It could not be of any of the negroes, and not one of them had had for a moment left the grotto. Suspicion naturally fell upon Negoro, who had been out alone upon the shore. Morose and cold-blooded as the man was, Dick hardly knew why he should suspect him of the crime of theft. Nevertheless, he determined to cross-examine him, and if need be, to have him searched as soon as he came back. The day wore onwards to its close. The sun was approaching the vernal equinox, and sank almost perpendicularly onto the horizon. Twilight was very short, and the rapidity with which darkness came on confirmed Dick in his belief that they had got ashore at some spot lying between the Tropic of Capricorn and the Equator. They all assembled in the grotto again for the purpose of getting some sleep. "'Another rough night coming on,' said Tom, pointing to the heavy clouds that hung over the horizon. "'No doubt, Tom,' answered Dick, "'and I think we may congratulate ourselves on being safe out of our poor ship.' As the night could not be otherwise than very dark, it was arranged that the negroes should take their turns in keeping guard at the entrance of the grotto. Dingo also would be upon the alert. Benedict had not yet returned. Hercules shouted his name with the full strength of his capacious lungs, and shortly afterwards the entomologist was seen making his way down the face of the cliff, at the imminent risk of breaking his neck. He was in a great rage. He had not found a single insect worth having. Scorpions, scolopendra and other myriapoda were in the forest in abundance, but not one of these, of course, could be allowed a place in his collection. "'Have I come six thousand miles for this?' he cried. "'Have I endured storm and shipwreck only to be cast where not a hexapod is to be seen? The country is detestable. I shall not stay in it another hour.' Ever gentle to his eccentricities, Mrs. Weldon soothed him as she would a child. She told him that he had better take some rest now, and most likely he would have better luck to-morrow. Cousin Benedict had hardly been pacified when Tom remarked that Nagoro too had not returned. "'Never mind,' said Bat. "'His room is as good as his company.' "'I cannot say that I altogether think so. The man is no favourite of mine, but I like him better under my own eye,' said Mrs. Weldon. "'Perhaps he has his own reasons for keeping away,' said Dick, and taking Mrs. Weldon aside, he communicated to her his suspicions of the fellow's dishonesty. He found that she coincided with him in her view of Nagoro's conduct, but she did not agree with him in his proposal to have him searched at once. If he returned, she should be convinced that he had deposited the money in some secret spot, and as there would be no proof of his guilt, it would be better to leave him, at least for a time, uninterrogated. Dick was convinced by her representations, and promised to act upon her advice. Before they resigned themselves to sleep, they had repeatedly summoned Nagoro back. Pide either could not or would not hear. Mrs. Weldon and Dick scarcely knew what to think. 
unless he had lost his way. It was unaccountable why he should be wandering about, alone, on a dark night in a strange country. Presently Dingo was heard barking furiously. He had left the opening of the grotto and was evidently down at the water's edge. Imagining that Negoro must be coming, Dick sent three of the negroes in the direction of the river to meet him, but when they reached the bank not a soul could be seen, and as Dingo was quiet again they made their way back to the grotto. Excepting the man left on watch, they now all lay down, hoping to get some repose. Mrs. Weldon, however, could not sleep. The land for which she had sighted so ardently had been reached, but it had failed to give either the security or the comfort which she had anticipated. End of Part the First Chapter 14 Recording by Alex C. Talander, Davis, California. www.alexcitalander.com